0: everyone and welcome to another Scott's Way podcast and this is one of the themed podcasts that we do every now and again. We've done one on Stevenson, on um, Scott, um, we've done a few Burns casts over the years and this is going to be about Muriel Spark and I'm joined today by Dr Colin McElroy who is the National Library of Scotland's curator of the International Style of Muriel Spark exhibition <gasps> and read. Hello Colin. Hello. Thanks for having me along. No problem. That's a huge title, but just maybe break that down a bit. What's
1: your job for the last year? Is it how long you've been doing I've it? I've been doing it now two and a half years. Is, is it two, two and a half, half years right? yeah. on
0: this project?
1: Well, the I guess the, the it's a kind of, the two main strands of the project are to to catalogue the archive which, given its humongous size, is an ongoing project. We should Um, probably set
0: out what the the, before we go on to talk about the exhibition.
1: This is
0: Muriel Spark, the centenary of her birth. And so there's a lot of things that have happened over the year and will continue to happen for the rest of the year, celebrating uh, her centenary. Mm -hmm. But one of the major ones, and the one which you were involved in, was the International
1: Style Muriel Spark exhibition. Yes. So... yeah. So we that that opened uh, December of last year and it just closed um, a few weeks ago, May the 13th was the last day, um, so I guess of five and a half months. Yeah, really just trying to use the, the, the archive to really tell Muriel Spark's life story through the archive uh, and, and really just be part of the whole Muriel Spark centenary. Uh, the Muriel Spark 100 has really been bringing together lots of people just to kind of try and, you know give her the the the, the sort of uh, the due you know yeah. she's she's such a phenomenal writer such a phenomenal figure and i think you know really a recognition by lots of individuals and sort of cultural institutions you know whether it's you know universities whether it's you know broadcasters um, to really make the most of the sparks centenary and we've been part of that as well uh, with the exhibition but also doing lots of sort of collaborations with people and uh, you know uh, alongside Creative Scotland, we, we, we have had a, a coordinator just to kind of help, you know, bring all these people together, which has been great. And then, of course, with the library, we've, you know, we acquired the the archive over the years. And so that's what the, the exhibition has grown out of. So you were already at the library yeah. archiving yeah. Muriel Spark,
0: curating the stuff, and yeah. then... The idea of this exhibition came up
1: then, or was it always was planned? Yeah, I I I started at the library at the end of 2015, and they knew that you know with with the centenary approaching that there would be an exhibition, and that they would you know get bring someone in to kind of uh, ideally list and get to get to know the archive, and then out of that uh, curate the exhibition. Um, so yeah, I did not think I was in with that. Uh, with a shout of of getting in there at the National Library because I don't have a, you know any background in cataloguing or archiving, yeah. but sort of somewhat fortuitously, I haven't studied Spark, um, yeah, they seemed to, yeah. Um, so for those who have sadly missed it, because as you say,
0: it's not long yeah. finished. Mm-hmm. Um, give a bit of uh, of the content mm-hmm. of it. it. Was broken down, if I remember right, because uh-huh. I saw yeah. it right at the beginning, <laughs> broken down into
1: the places that she was linked. Yeah. to, is that right? Yeah. What- I remember speaking to um, people at the library who had been involved in exhibitions before and they said, when you're telling a life story, if you can try and do it thematically as opposed to just a kind of chronological this is when they were born and running through mm-hmm. the, the, the story of their life. Looking at Muriel Sparks' life, it seemed that you could... I, I seemed that it could divide it up fairly clearly into the areas in which she lived. You know, she was born... Like, it grew up in Edinburgh and then, you know, at the age of 19 she moved to then southern Rhodesia as it mm-hmm. was at the time, spent... Short period of time there, but a really important period of time. And then towards the end of the Second World War, she came back. Um, she moved to London at this point and was trying to establish herself as a writer. And that, that was the case and, uh, through to the sort of early 60s. And then New York, she moved there for a while. And then she came back to Europe, moved to Rome, and then uh, spent the last few decades in Tuscany. And it seemed like a, you know, an easy way to kind of divide up uh, her life story Mm-hmm. Uh, by those areas and trying to think about you know how those areas influenced her writing and, and 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 be able to show those as as kind of you know an aspect of the exhibition I hadn't thought of previously. I was only thinking of the content in terms of you know which writers, which uh, pieces of correspondence would show who were the writers that you wanted, who were my favourites, yeah. what what pieces of the archive told the story, but of course she was such a kind of stylistic individual she was so concerned with style that that, you know the designers would come in and say, Well we we can kind of recreate what what our flat might have looked like in Rome in the late sixties and early seventies and that in a way tells a story visually. Yeah. That allows people to then, you know, read what's on display and almost feel in each section sort of embedded within an era or a a time yeah I mean
0: aside from
1: uh, it being about Muriel Spark it's Mm -hmm. a whole kind of social
0: cultural history Mm -hmm. of um, a a woman in the 20th century how she changes you know it goes from the little girl at school in Edinburgh um, Mm -hmm. to as you say she has all these kind of quite glamorous um a yeah. changes
1: as the as the fashions changed as well. Yeah, absolutely, and it seemed that that aspect should be brought out um, in a way that people could just react to visually and be in that at the same time as they could then read the correspondence from whether it's Graham Greene or the you know childhood poems. You know, as you say, when she's at James Gillespie's and it's Miss Christina Kaye says you know I mean, Sparks says that in curriculum vitae it was almost predestined. You know that that great theme that that recurs throughout her work, you know, that Miss Kay said, you know, you're the school's poet and dreamer and you will be a writer, Uh, and so you have those examples and you can see the, you know, the material that she's written, you can see the, you know, the the, the manuscripts, all, all of that side of it, but it seemed to really, to try and make her herself come alive. Through not just the, the the documents within the archive, but trying to create a sense of time and space and place in which she was writing.
0: Yeah, it was a when I was walking around it, um, it was fairly busy, and mm. uh, you did hear people not just who were there to perhaps see the letters and stuff oh, like that, but yeah. go, oh, you know, my auntie used to wear that. You know, went back <laughs> exactly. in the day. Or, That's great. That That's what I you want. Uniform. Yeah. That was like that, yeah. yeah.
1: I would always point out to people, you know, attention to detail of designers, and say, you know, look. In, in, in the sort of London part. Look at the carpet. It looks like my granny's carpet. And yeah. everyone would go. So it does. Yeah, it's totally of that era. You know. And as far as you see pictures of, of 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 Spark in that era, and sometimes it's the, you know it's the two bar electric fire behind. Yeah. And, and, and you know the furniture is 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 this of that time. So I mean, you um,
0: studied Spark as you said. What mm-hmm. did doing the exhibition and actually working with the archive? How,
1: what new things emerged for you then? Um, in terms of. Her personality. Uh, I think what emerged was um, undoubtedly she, you know, locked horns with people and she would fall out with people occasionally. But she's much warmer, kinder, more generous. Uh, almost, you know, the majority of the time, and that I think is, you know, I perhaps had allowed some of the negative things that have been written about her to kind of filter into to, to what I was expecting. And even although there are times when she does stand up for herself, she does you know fall out with people. The majority of the time, you've got someone who's just predominantly hilarious, unbelievably smart, gets on really well with lots of people, um, and that you know pro- it's probably sad to say that I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. You know, but which is great because you know it, I can imagine that Spark is the only writer whose, whose archive I've really worked with mm-hmm. in any kind of depth. Um, but her life is so interesting that um, I can imagine working with other writers where you think the writing's fantastic but there's not really much of interest in the archive whereas with Spark you do have a lot of intriguing stuff going on So let's talk a little bit about reputation as you Mm -hmm. say there was a kind of
0: reputation I'm not entirely sure Mm -hmm. where it came from except that she certainly in later years was fairly reclusive and I think probably Mm -hmm. always private
1: yeah, which you yeah. know
0: nowadays people want to know everything yeah. about everyone but yeah. so would she never kind of out to that
1: no not at all I mean there's even there's a, there's a letter um, where I can't remember the, the instance um, during the 60s uh, and it's she's a, sort of accused in one of I don't know one, one of the newspapers of you know being part of the literary scene and she says you know a rent a house in Camberwell. I couldn't be further away from the trendy parts of London if I tried. You know, I'm not. I don't do the whole socialising side of things uh, in that term. I mean, she, I think she did, but she did it in her own terms. Yes. Uh, in terms, you know, that she, she wasn't out there being seen at the right parties. If she was out and about, then that would be um, on her own, uh, kind of, you know, seeing the people she wanted to see uh, and spend it. It wasn't the kind of, oh, you need to, to be in the literary circle or Yeah.
0: So do you think that she is better? Because I think she is one of the best writers of the 20th century Mm -hmm. across the board, no matter Mm -hmm. where she's come from. Mm -hmm. I do get the feeling, and the exhibition kind of um, confirmed that, Mm -hmm. that uh, she's maybe better considered internationally than
1: nationally. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah, perhaps so. Hopefully, we have some small, you know. Uh, effect on that. Hopefully, this year mm-hmm. we'll, we'll um, have some kind of reappraisal of her standing, uh, as you say nationally. I think. Yeah, I get. I get the impression from working through the archive that she probably was held in higher regard down south in the states and certain parts of Europe as well uh, than perhaps she has been here in Scotland. Um, again, but it's difficult to quantify that. You know, yes. that that's just a sense of. You know, reading through some of the materials. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I still think, and it's in the, the exhibition as well. But perhaps mm-hmm. she's known for, if at all, for the Prime Minister Jean Brodie. That's yeah. the one that everyone kind of knows
1: her for. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And um, obviously, the film version kind of yeah. took her on a life of its own as well, uh, and it's much yeah. loved. Um, which. And and Berlin, I think, are are republishing all twenty-two yep. of her novels. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yeah, know? yeah. Um, so from those twenty-two novels, if you say, well, you know, the prime mystery Brody, uh-huh. where else would you suggest people? Oh. What's
1: your? I, I go have to? great difficulty narrowing this down um, because uh, I love so many of the books. I think the comforters is just an astonishing. Comforters you know. was our debut. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and you know it's almost you, the joke at the time was that, that almost as though the, the Muriel found novel writing came to her so easily that she almost had to make it more difficult. So she tackles, you know, not only the sort of novel within a novel, but the whole notion of what it is to be a writer in the first novel, uh, you know, kind of fractured psyche and, you know, elements of the supernatural and all of this whilst, you know, the the main protagonist is is writing a book on the novel in the twentieth century. I mean it's 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 this sort of it's as sort of, jokingly postmodern as you could get, albeit at the same time she never fits into those categories. You know? Yeah. I, I, so, so I love the comforters. Uh, I think you know, um Memento Mori is is you know, the premise of the book being about you know, remember you must die, sitting in an old folks' home, and yet it still manages to be funny. You know, you. you how many writers would be skilful enough to, 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 to make that happen? Um, you know, Brody, The Girls of Slender means perhaps the archetypal Spark novel. I love the Mandelbaum Gate because it's the most non-archetypal Spark novel. Right. What's the Mandelbaum Gate? Oh, that's what I haven't read. The Mandelbaum Gate, um, the, the main character, Barbara Vaughan, and what intrigues me is that one of the letters that I came across recently in the archive is Spark writing to her publisher saying, whereas um, you know in the past people have said, oh, certain characters like Caroline Rose and the Comforters, or January Marlowe and uh, Robinson, you know, maybe based upon upon Spark herself. Yeah, she actually says that's not the case, but Barbara Vaughn is me. It's the one time I've, you know where she's essentially at this point kind of fessed up to saying, yeah, I'm, I'm writing myself this character because in '61 Spark uh, visited the Holy Land, visited Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, Palestine, Israel, and um, many of the kind of experiences that Barbara Vaughan goes through. Spark went through as well, um, but this letter was written in sixty one. Who knows between then and sixty five when the novel was published, how much that changed? But you said, you know, this is me, but I'm making everything round about it fictional in terms of the characters mm-hmm. and whatnot. But certainly, a lot of the events that happened uh, in, the, in the novel happened um, to Spark. Um, but it's a kind of it's it, it's pitched as a kind of realist spy fiction uh, extended uh, narrative. As opposed to her really sort of truncated, uh, you know those s- slices of fiction that the that, that, that she narrows down, uh, as she said after writing it, you know that she I keep mean, it short and make them laugh. Did
0: coming across letters like that or, or um, correspondence mm-hmm. where suddenly it made you look at the novels in a different way, or at least opened up for kind of some kind of
1: truth behind them? I think that in that case, yes. Um, in the terms of the rest of, of the novels, um, I think you would, you would have to sort of piece together an entire jigsaw of fragments from within the, the letters and the correspondence. There's not the big reveal. You know, there's not the Rosetta Stone that says, here's the decoding, here's mm-hmm. how you decode, because she didn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, anything anything could, could do that. I don't think her writing is is it's so complex and, and is so... Uh, multi-layered that there's no one single thing to, to, to be decoded as it were uh, but certainly it's intriguing to me that, and in the exhibition um, we borrowed the, the manuscript of The Prime of Miss Brodie from Tulsa mm-hmm. and the author's note that came with that uh, she, she went to the point of uh, saying that the book, even although it's set in Edinburgh and set in the same time that she was at school in Edinburgh and was grown up, that it's not disguised autobiography Mm-hmm. And it would be a blow to her pride of invention if anyone thought so. And I think the the one bugbear that I maybe have when it comes to commentary and criticism and spark is that she is her characters. Yeah. And I think that does such a huge disservice to her sort of That's imaginative, creative powers. You know, and, and when I read that regarding the Mandelbaum Gate, thinking, well, she is saying that Barbara Vaughn is a version of her, but she's at pains to say that, you know, the other characters are invented many of the circumstances of the book are from her creative imagination. Well, some of the characters are so extreme, anyway. I mm-hmm. mean, yep. is extreme, yep. and, and uh, know, at
0: least in yeah, the driver's seat, is incredible. I mean, to say it's autobiographical is
1: yeah, like, yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, you wouldn't want to... But, but, I, but I think, I, I, and, I, and I remember what I, I, another person um, pointing out that, you know, on those cases where you read something that you've heard Sparks say in an interview... Mm-hmm. Uh th- this is a truth, this is something, this is about how I approach writing, or this is a certain truth. Those ideas crop up in the mouths of the villains and the really dubious characters, you know. It's almost as like she's so ego-less in her writing that that, that she can, you know, put her own words into the mouths of the kind of characters that anyone else would want to make themselves look good and put them into the, you know, the, the, the hero or the you know the characters that look good or sound good. Whereas Sparks, like, no, i give my good ideas to the real, you know, the nerdy Um, She was well thought of by other writers mm-hmm. and you had quite a lot of correspondence with other writers, such as? Yeah, um, well, uh, Doris Lessing, Iris Murdoch, John Updike, Beryl Bainbridge, George Mackay Brown, uh, Candia McWilliam, uh, Graham Green, Evelyn Waugh, I mean, yeah, yeah. just uh, Christine Rose. just, yeah.
0: And that's the kind of company that I think yeah. you know
1: she deserves to be seen in do Yeah.
0: Um. So if someone is coming to Spark, uh-huh. not having read any yeah. of Spark, what kind of would
1: you tell them to expect? What would you expect? That's tricky. I would. Ex- I would. I would. I would suggest that they expect not. That they shouldn't, perhaps it's easier to say what they shouldn't yeah, expect yeah, yeah, that yeah. might be the best way sure. uh, um, thinking, uh, don't expect straight away, straight realism albeit there's aspects of that uh, expect there to be very dark, bleak humour um, deep theological and philosophical questions which I won't attempt to wade into um, and um, yeah, the kind of Comedy coming from it. I was going to say. I think that's yeah. what
0: people maybe don't expect. It's just how funny yeah. a lot of it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I recently read the Abbesse of Crew for yes. the first time because uh, we're looking at yep. the films of Spark and that was turned into the film called That's the that's right? I still have your DVD in the house. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. But um, it's it's political. It's about Watergate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's just instead of it being a political satire or yeah. it is a political satire yeah. but that's set um, where the new the next Abbess has to be yeah. voted in, so mm-hmm. there's all these kind of political machinations going on mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church which you must have been doing a treat as well
1: but that was one of the first things that struck me was 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 the reading spark and knowing the the part of the biography that should should you know become a Catholic in nineteen fifty four and you know the, the only writer that I've ever come across that, that doesn't read, she doesn't read Luke Spark, but in terms of the tone of the work that seems vaguely reminiscent is Flannery O'Connor right. and, and, and what what strikes me in common with both of them is certainly, and, and in Spark's books is that you know Catholics more often than not, again are the, are the worst characters in the book you know, there's a bit in The Comforters where the, the main character, uh, Caroline Rose she's going through that same process and thinking about converting but her worry is if I if I convert to Catholicism, will I become like them? You know, and, and and you think, you know, this is this is Spark who, you know, made those kind of off the cuff or those those comments about, you know, I wouldn't go to mass until after the sermon because I couldn't stand a third rate production. And that's not in her book, that's her. Yeah, that, that's yeah. not in her writing, you know. But it's you know that the humour that she that it, it, she's scathing about aspects of Catholicism in the same way that, that she's scathing about, you know. Politics and she's scathing about you know, um, well, well, obviously with, as you mentioned in the abbess of crew Watergate, but I think it's the it's the humour that she brings to it that, that means that, that you can read that without thinking it's it's not an all out assault on any spiritual belief. Um, it's it, yeah.
0: It was interesting recently a showing of uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie in Edinburgh and yes. watching it with an Edinburgh <laughs> audience. Now, I've been in an audience in Glasgow and watched it, and everyone, you know, kind of laughs and it's a great film and all that. Mm-hmm. But in Edinburgh, they were really, it yeah. was the funniest thing you've ever heard. Because the, the, the one-liners that, they, that are in there yeah. um, mm-hmm. are just so Edinburgh and yeah. so precise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was great to yeah. see people just, you know, uh-huh. um, having a... a that's when it got to me. You know, this, this stuff is really funny. Yeah, you know, absolutely. If it yeah. can make a full room of people laugh out loud yeah. like that, it's got yeah. To have something. Yeah, going for it. I should
1: point out, that was a great introduction as well that you did.
0: Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have been uh, on a bit of a. Um, well, that, that night was a good example. You yeah. know, you've been involved in lots of these <coughs> events that have kind of been going on. Um, can you tell us
1: about some of those, some of the
0: things you've been Yeah.
1: Doing? Um, well, in addition to uh, the exhibition. Um, we've been involved in for example there was the the academic symposium which uh, was jointly organized with the library and the University of Glasgow and we had you know people coming from from Japan from the states from Italy Germany Spain to come and talk about spark that was that was fantastic um and yeah fun enough we, we showed the film on the opening night of that as well yeah when I think about it there was people really enjoyed it but yeah it wasn't the same. You know, laughter. There was uh, uh, a West Coast audience as opposed to East Coast. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of thing. There's been lots of. Uh, we've had lots of writers coming to the library. Um, Candy McWilliam was there to talk. A lot of you mentioned the the, the Polygon, the Berlin, the twenty two new editions, and, mm-hmm. and, and quite a lot of the uh, the people involved in writing the new introductions. have been Yeah, every book has got its own yeah. uh,
0: introduction. Um, yeah. Too many, twenty-two of them for twenty-two, enough. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah. one of which is Alan Taylor, who um, I should say yep. he's had a book out as well. It's an Appointment mm-hmm. in Arezzo Red So, yeah, a friendship with Muriel Spark, and ah. he's been very heavily involved. With absolutely, that, yeah,
1: think. Alan's been been yeah the hardest working man in show business, is yeah, uh, and it's been. <laughs> I could good. see
0: him good, carried off. Yeah, the <laughs> the <laughs> the cape, yeah, the
1: cape, like yeah, brown. yeah. Um, <laughs> but he has, and uh, uh, it's been fantastic. And I think um, I read. A, a review by uh, Brian Morton, and he said, or oh, in fact, it wasn't Brian Morton that wrote, that wrote the review. It was uh, Alan Massey in the Scotsman, mm-hmm. uh, and he mentioned he said it's really nice to have, a, you know, a book that you know kind of wears its heart on its sleeve, is honest about the fact, you know, I, you know, was a huge fan and friendly with Muriel, and this is an affectionate portrayal, yeah. as opposed to, you know anything else you know we've had plenty of of biographies of of writers that seem to set out with the kind of goal in mind of revealing everything that you wouldn't want revealed Um, whereas Alan's book I think doesn't shy away from from some of the the sort of controversial aspects or so called controversies in Muriel's life but it is an affectionate portrayal and I think for people who've read that book I, I think that they get to see what I probably get to see on a daily basis in the archive which is Predominantly, someone who's just really kind, generous, witty, funny, incredibly mm-hmm. talented, an amazing interest in everything, everything, you know. Um, and that's what comes through, I think, in Ark's book. I think that's right. It doesn't pretend to be anything, it's
0: not. No. no. And if folk are looking for some kind of whiff of scandal, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's not the right place. No. Then that's something, as I say, she's obviously been a very private person um, throughout her life, mm-hmm. and sometimes for good reason, you know. Failed yep. marriage, you know, mm-hmm. difficult to say the least relationship with her son. yeah, yeah. Um, And it's not hidden, no. but, you know, it's right. like, well, you know, and that dear reader will stay behind the, the door, but yeah. you know, which I yeah. think
1: is absolutely fair enough. Yeah. But, I, I mean, in our... As the exhibition did yeah. as well. Like, well, I mean, we, we touched on the subject, all of those, the, those areas that you mentioned. It's, um, but in a way, I, th- I kind of felt like there was a whole series of dialogue, a whole series of coverage that had been out there over the years and rather than dwell on those aspects of things, um, simply present the, her, her life story in a way that people could then make up their own mind regarding you know, what, how they felt about those. We didn't want to get into too much depth because what I find about, about all of that side of things is that it gets away from the writing and it gets away from her a little bit mm-hmm. um, and none of that Seemed to be particularly illuminating regarding her writing or other aspects of her life. Um, I don't know. The, 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 the approach that we took, took was was really just to try and you know draw people back to the writing, show that she had this really interesting life, try and be fair, and you know, hopefully, it wasn't just hagiography. It was mm-hmm. showing that you know at certain times she wouldn't see eye to eye with people that, as you mentioned the relationship with her son um, but at the same time you know these are things that if she was a male writer we wouldn't even be mentioning
0: yeah you know it's I a real right.
1: double standard that you know that exists and continues to exist yeah absolutely um, I don't mean you wouldn't be I just mean that, you know no everyone, no everyone, everyone, they wouldn't even you know
0: uh, no that's interesting up. in itself then so putting together the exhibition did you have that in the back of your mind this was a female writer rather than a male writer, and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think I think that it was because it was
0: you're, I mean, you know, there were the exhibitions of well, here's a pair of specs, or here's a such, yeah, such. you yeah. might not do that yeah. if it was, I might do it if it was Alistair Gray, if you wanted his cardi yeah. or
1: something yeah. like that, but I mean, I like to think that you know, you know, we were asked that, you know, would you have outfits of a male writer, and I think, well. If If it was Tom Wolfe, you definitely would have a... Well, perfect, yeah, case in point, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Muriel throughout her life talked about, you know, from the point where she worked in William Smalls after she left school, how important fashion and dress Mm -hmm. was to Mm -hmm. her, how important it is in her novels, Yeah, you know, how important style, her love of visual art, her love of design, uh, her love of clothing, and, you know, when you do think about clothes in the book and you think about, you know, how important they are... um, whether it's, you know, Jean Brodie educating the girls on what they should wear, mm-hmm. or even Miss Kane, curriculum vitae, saying, you know, or, you know, on a summer day, one should wear grey with a, you know, a citron berry, which is 15 parts yellow and one part blue. I mean, it's super specific yeah. regarding colour and dress and art, and that's the way throughout her entire career, and, you know, whether it's Lise's sort of garish outfit... In order to be seen, she, mm-hmm. she is very must much be able to be wiped clean
0: as well. <laughs> no, well, indeed, to...
1: <laughs> well, indeed. And as my friend Big Raymond pointed out, as it hadn't occurred to me as well, you know, it doesn't stain. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, you know, the stain of original sin and all sorts of things that i hadn't even contemplated. But yeah, that idea that you know, fashion can be self expression, but it can also be part of self negation. Yeah, you know, it can be camouflage, it can be self expression, it can be the form of you know, hiding, it can be the form of. Of, of notice me you know Sparks always fascinated you know when you think of the chaparelli dress and the girls of slender means as a kind of motif that runs the whole way through it it's always been crucial to her writing and I think in Alan Taylor's book he says you know when you see pictures of Muriel she's chameleon like and yeah. th- the story goes she would go to the hairdressers and say make me look different yeah, I mean, there are, I'm just looking at a bit the website now, but mm-hmm. for each section, you've got
0: a different picture of her, one in Rome, London, mm-hmm. Africa, Edinburgh yeah. well, obviously, she's a kid. But, you're, I mean, it could be different women in yeah. nearly yeah. everyone. Yeah. And not just in the terms of style. Yeah. Uh-huh. As you say, there is this almost chameleon-like yeah. sense of, I want to change. And uh-huh. Just as um, part of her was obviously in her characters, but as you say, you don't make direct comparisons. Mm-hmm. And she was constantly changing
1: herself well I think yeah and, and again uh, uh, Alan Taylor had mentioned it, that, that you know that kind of um, approach to how she looked there was there was a corresponding approach in that she didn't write the same book twice she was always you know each book was a new challenge and a new approach and even although there are elements of her style you know that, that you can think of as, as running through uh, her, her novels she doesn't return you know to the same place. She doesn't return to the same characters or the same plots, um, and I think you know that determination to, to write something fresh, something new each time. Uh, when you see that correlation, that is, you know, having criticised the kind of biographic approach, mm-hmm. now you know, guilty of the very same thing. But it does seem as though that was an aspect of her personality, which was to not repeat yourself and to not go back over and to try and break new ground. Um, you said The Comforters was the debut novel, but yep. I'd like to go back
0: before that, because mm-hmm. I think that's the, the, the kind of, I almost said the spark, I'm going to mm-hmm. not do that. It's inevitable. But the beginning of her life as a writer, you said at school, yeah. she was told you will be a writer, yeah. you know, in the same way that Jim Brodie would maybe pronounce, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we certainly, you know, we the, the first sort of um, material that we have from... Sort 1930 31 You know, there's there, there's evidence that she was writing from poetry from nineteen twenty nine. She's born in nineteen eighteen. So by by you know by the age of sort of eleven twelve, she's writing poems and she's been published in Gillespie's school magazine. And there's a great edition. I think it's the nineteen thirty one where they write a little paragraph saying, you know, normally we would only give one poem to to any of the pupils, but Muriel Camberg, as she was at that age, mm-hmm. you know, is is such a talent that we're giving her five poems. You know, and you think, you know. It's like you've just made it into high school. You've got you know the the students who are five six years older than you. And here are you getting five poems? Well, they only get one, and it's amazing to read them. You know they yeah. they are just unbelievably brilliant for 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 someone at that age.
0: And her first kind of when she came to recognition, a wider recognition was short stories,
1: wasn't it? Was it yeah. the yeah
0: and was that Seraph
1: and Zambezi, Yeah, the very one. Yeah, uh, the Observer short story contest, nineteen fifty one, um, which she. Um, the, the, the archive we do have a couple of sort of fragments of short stories that she'd written before then, but this was the first short story that she'd actually uh, submitted anywhere. she was being published in poetry magazines and she'd been uh, working at the the Poetry Society and editing the Poetry Review, and she was garnering a reputation as a poet and an editor. Um, but this was the first yeah the short story that she's submitted. That, that was won. the first thing I ever.
0: Read right, okay. right, yeah, and then I read yeah. the, the short story collection before I read any oh, right of the
1: before, but, it. Yeah. and
0: they are just incredible. You know, we are talking yeah. about the novels on the whole here, but you should check out her short stories; they are yeah. just fantastic.
1: And yeah, and I love. It seems that in the short stories, she she quite a lot of the short the early ones were submitted to kind of those magazines that were somewhere the overlap between mystery and detective. Mm. you know, and when you think about those genres that, that those are two areas that she returns to throughout her fiction, but especially in the short stories you find variations on the detective ghost kind of surreal fiction. Yeah. You know, uh and and and, and lovely for me, lots of lots of fiction about archives mm. and executors and estates and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can get really Bustman's holiday about the whole thing. I uh, think that the, the Supernatural for one of a better term or something else you yeah. probably
0: wouldn't expect. Uh, in, no, in a, in no. A in a
1: yeah, that, and again, that's that that that's what you would sort of tell people the, to expect. That and it's just it's that curious way that she uses the, the the supernatural in that. You know, I remember reading the review of David Lynch and 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 um, I think it was David Foster Wallace where he was talking about you know the standard line on David Lynch is that he shows. You know, white picket fence America, and then this really dark, surreal, you know, subterranean existence. And he said that's a misreading. In fact, Lynch tells you that the dark surrealism is on the surface as well. Mm. And in a way, that applies to Spark. She doesn't make a delineation between, you know, Dougal Douglas's bizarre trickster behaviour in the Ballad of Peckham Rye as being supernatural in a way that doesn't coexist with day to day life. You know, he's he's in there doing his industrial espionage, mm-hmm. um, and you know, ruining people's lives and making other people's lives better at the same time. Um, and, and in that, you know, in a way that approach to the supernatural is it's not you know, it's not a kind of trait. You know, use of ghosts or spooks for 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 thrills and spells. It's yeah. it's a theological underpinning. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and and it coexists. You know, she as far as she's concerned, the natural and the supernatural. There's you know, there's no major distinction. I also get the sense that she takes writing
0: very seriously, but she found life absurd.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, what absolutely.
0: She, you know, she writes down, and yeah. that always comes through. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, um. So. After, you know, getting the into Zambezi, her
1: writing just seemed to take off, because
0: then you suddenly well,
1: got... There, there was a little lull in that that was 51, very end of 51. So into 52, mm-hmm. uh, she was still... was 51, she published uh, Child of Light, the fantastic book uh, on Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I think those books uh, on Mary Shelley and the, the Brontes, Emily Bronte in particular, you know, are, are starting to garner the kind of attention they deserve. Um, and she did... Uh, there was tribute to Wordsworth... Book uh, with Derek Stanford on John Henry Newman and uh, John Masefield, the former poet laureate. So, throughout that period when she was doing poetry and criticism, she was also doing these, you know, books, mm-hmm. biography or critical biography or yeah. works of criticism, depending on your angle. From 50s, sort of when she won the Seraph and the Zambezi, it then took a little while for the first novel to come out. She had planned the first release to be a, a book of short stories. And she writes to her editor Alan MacLean round right about nineteen fifty four fifty five to say I'm now thinking this might work better or become a novel. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, if, yeah. If we'll, we'll trust you, if you want to, if you want to go ahead and do that. So there is a period in between where she did suffer some ill health, fifty three and fifty four, and so I think that probably slowed things down. But she was still publishing, as I said, in all these mystery magazines. Mm-hmm. Poems have been published. Detective magazines. You know where you know you you think, oh, I'm going to get a story about. A whatever kind of detective next thing you know it's you know a ghostly detective with a you know surreal uh, supernatural thing going on and you're thinking this is not what you'd expect um but by 57 when the comforters comes out yeah she's she's sort of back on track health-wise and and yeah as and writes through
0: right to pretty much the end isn't she still being published um, yep.
1: finishing school's yeah. last book yeah 2004 she died in 2006 so yeah, um, so at which point her last book was published, she died when she was eighty eight. So she was still being published at eighty six, and she was still she was still writing.
0: Do you think there's almost too much stuff? And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, often writers who are um, critically lauded. Mm-hmm. They'll have you know maybe a shorter back catalogue to someone. She was just writing and writing and writing, and it's all of a very high quality. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Perhaps I don't know. I mean, I think um, the I think the sort of critical consensus is that you know her her the the years from the comforters perhaps through maybe loitering with intent in eighty one would have been perceived as her last great novel, although. Again, that's just a perception, and the, the the really brilliant ones were from fifty seven up until the early seventies. Um, so that's our kind of purple rain yeah. to Alphabet Street. The, you know yes, that yes, of yeah. because it, it's yeah. something that said the yeah. Prince as
0: well. Or there was almost too much music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you, yeah.
1: yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah, but but I, but I do think you mentioned the finishing school, and I think that's it's tonally different. Again, you know, the novels do do tend to to differ and it's quite it's um, it's quite scathing you know she talked about satire and ridicule but it's kind of a gentler Mm -hmm. uh, satire and ridicule towards the end but I think you know things like uh, Symposium uh, in 1990 and then you know aiding and abetting about Mm -hmm. about, you know taking the looking story and and, and going with that I think some of the late works are brilliant as, as well but I understand that you know the critical consensus I mean, is more the earlier. I'm asking that you
0: kind know, of with my tongue in my cheek because uh-huh. you know everything I've read off and I haven't read anyone near the twenty two, but everything mm-hmm. I have read of I absolutely love it, and mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to kind of you know yeah. completing the set eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, The Prime of Mystery Jean Brody stands out, yeah. you yeah. know, uh-huh. and it's and it's a great book and everyone yeah. should read it, but yeah. I think that's a shame when maybe one overshadows Yeah, perhaps. Maybe I yeah. yeah, maybe it's maybe it's still a, a wrong perception. But
1: uh, it seems to be. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, she she talked about that herself. You know, uh, Jean Brodie, as Thomas Hardy had said about, you know, Tessa Durrowell's old milch cow. You know, that's what keeps the che- <laughs> that's what that's what keeps the you know the checks coming in and the money rolling in. And uh, and so I'm sure you know Muriel probably a- appreciated that. Um, but yeah, perhaps there's a, there's a tendency to, to for that to overshadow how brilliant the rest of her work was. Is so the. Um, all the stuff
0: that was in the exhibition is mm-hmm. that just now put back into storage? Is that uh, we, what happens next?
1: We borrowed some of it. Um, the manuscripts for the driver's seat and the prime minister Jim Brodie um, are now back. Are already back in Tulsa. Um, Penelope Jardine, um, Muriel's uh, great friend uh, and long time compadre. Um, we are returning some of the items she loaned us. You know some of the personal yeah, yeah. things like you know the typewriter and you know the rosary beads and the memento mori, the scary skull sort of necklace uh, and dresses and the, you know the designer handbags and, and whatnot. Some of them are going back. Although very kindly she said that we can hold on to some of them as well. Um, but yeah, the, the majority of the material that was on display in terms of the correspondence and the letters, yeah, that goes that goes back into our uh, shelves in the National Library. And uh, have you Are you working on something that you can tell us about? Next. Well, well, just, I mean, it, it's a matter of, you know, there, there's another 33 boxes arrived from Tuscany for The Golden Fleece, the, the the collection of essays that was published in 2014 that Penelope edited, but of course, featuring work from throughout Muriel's life. Um, so we've just received another 33 boxes, so there's never a shortage of material to be, to, to I, mean, I, I mean, in terms of catalogue, and there's hundreds and hundreds of boxes, and I'm still, you know, a long way to go in terms of uh Cataloging it and so that when you know you can go online or come to the library and, and see an inventory, and instead of just being faced with, oh, I'm going to have to take, you know, six months of research, leave and work through this you know, we can pinpoint where you would go. That's trying to, to make that happen. So if
0: someone so, you know is listening to this now and they think, oh, I missed that, I really wanted to kind of mm-hmm. see some, they can go to the library and, yeah, and yeah. search and just as you. Sure. Can. Yeah.
1: you Come along. You just do uh, um, you get a reader's card. You just need a couple of forms of ID, take your picture, and then you can go to to into the reading rooms, and you can call up this material, and you can you can see all of these letters that you know, just. Yeah, I, I can't believe I get the chance to see them on a, on a daily basis, you know. Because I think there will
0: be people that maybe come, because of everything that's going on this year, mm-hmm. start reading and want
1: to know a bit more and kind of want to. I, yeah, I've, I, you know, since the exhibition closed, there were people in contact saying, I wish I'd made it along. Can I come along and see, you know, what was on display? And you say, well, yeah, most of it, as we've just talked about, some of it is no longer in the country, but most of it is here. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, it's accessible. The public can access it. So, did you have a, a favourite piece in the exhibition? When you thought, that's a favourite piece." Um, again, it's like sparse novels. I realised when you asked me, you know, where to start, I probably said seven novels, <laughs> um, and it's difficult, you know, in terms of the exhibition, so many amazing things. I think the, the thing that I enjoyed the best was, you know, you get letters from Jackie Onassis, and John Updike, and Doris Lessing, and you know, and all of the, you know Harold Macmillan. After he retired from politics, went back to Macmillan's the publishers and so so you've got these of big figures Elizabeth Taylor you know you get yeah big big names um, but what got me was um, what brought out the the aspects of Sparks' personality that, that I really enjoyed was a letter from there's a chap um, who writes to her following the Abbess of Crew mm-hmm. uh, and he says. Uh, I, I work at the British Museum and I'm writing to object about uh, the passage in uh, the book where Sister Winifred is arrested in the, the, the gents' toilets of the British Museum wearing a Sydney Sussex tie. And, you know, I didn't know Sydney Sussex was a college at Cambridge University, I'm right. But anyway, found that out and, and he says, you know, you can imagine the embarrassment this has caused me, given that you know I studied at Sydney Sussex, and then I now work in the British Museum. it's, You know, any chance you could change this in future editions? And what I love about it is that Spark just enters into the fun of the whole thing and writes back to him and says, "Well, I think you know during business hours you ought to keep your tie on and not leave it lying around for an innocent <laughs> nun to, to pick up." But I'm sorry to have <laughs> described it in such detail, and I thought this was in this was in a pile of fan mail, mm. you know, uh, and. It just illustrated the fact that she did take so much time to answer fan mail. What I was astounded by was the amount of writers um, who send their stuff to her because she's well-known, because she's famous, because she's a respected writer. And she reads a huge amount of material from writers at the beginning of their career and gets back to them and they say, I can't believe you've read my novel and you've given me comments on it. And I kept coming across this over and over and over again. And I know you know, she obviously received that from Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh at the beginning of her career, and you know the, the simple assumption to make is, is it's kind of pay, paying it back. To mm-hmm. But it just showed again that kind of generosity that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps foolishly, I, you know, but I wasn't expecting the sheer sense of fun. The fact that she took so much time to answer fan mail, um, students' requests, uh, other writers. You know, who were just saying like, "What, what do you think?" I, I hugely respect your opinion. Any chance you could, you know, tell me what you think of this? And she takes the time to write back. So that that one piece was just her entering into the fun of this whole... You know, just yeah. a, a fan writing to say how much they'd enjoyed the absurdity of the Abyss of Crewe. Um Did it change your, your opinion of, of, of Spark when really done this? Um, yeah, I, I think it slightly enhanced my appreciation for not only how hard she works, how dedicated she was, the sacrifices that she made, but also the fact that in amongst all of that she gave a huge amount of her time to other people as well. Uh, And the comedy that, as you rightly say, is there throughout the books is there in her, you know, in the correspondence and in her life as well. Um, And of course that, you know, makes for an an enjoyable day at the office when you're (laughs) opening up boxes and you're going, I can't believe, have you heard this? You know?
0: Well, Colin, thanks very much for coming Thank to do you. this. And should mention that all the
1: future Muriel Spark things are on the Muriel Spark Hundred website. Muriel's yeah, Spark One Hundred. Yeah, if you if you just Google Muriel Spark One Hundred, you'll get the Spark One Hundred website where you'll get details of events by everyone and, and anyone. And there's members. lots yeah. of stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. So so if you, you know if you're it's not uh, it's not just the library. It's uh, organizations your local book festivals local libraries we're trying to promote spark across the whole country in fact you know down south as well just really i think you know celebrate someone that you know thanks a genius i know you're a big fan that, that um deserves to be celebrated um you know someone asked me what do you think she, uh, uh, muriel, muriel spark would say with the whole centenary stuff and I think about time you know, it's like, yeah, well,
0: <laughs> you know yes yeah why did it take it so bloody long yeah, exactly yeah well I think that's the perfect place to finish so thanks very much thanks Alan thank you and thanks we'll be back me. soon with uh, someone completely different cheers cheers